0: paranormal reality season 3 with jayalani is hoga or zor se ki jhooti par, reality war. listen to the podcast a month before anywhere else exclusively on amazon music included with your prime membership
1: namaste jai hind welcome to another edition of ani podcast with smita prakash Many of you have written in to request us to get some domain specialists to our Delhi studios for the podcast. We do try our best to accommodate as many requests as possible. I'm not really a fan of Zoom interviews. It reminds me of the COVID era. And hence, all our guests are those who come to our Delhi studios. Today I speak with J. Sai Deepak, engineer turned litigator turned author. His two books, India, that is Bharat, Coloniality, Civilization, Constitution, and India, Bharat and Pakistan, The Constitutional Journey of a Sandwiched Civilization are two voluminous, well-researched books on the Indian civilization. His views are hugely popular among a cross-section of the Indian population which believes that the way Indians have read and perceived history of its own civilization is through the prism of their colonial masters that Indians constantly seek validation. On the other hand, some historians feel that Sai Deepak and some other historians are whitewashing history through an unnecessary debate of native versus colonial prism. Uh, thank you so much for coming to our studios, uh, Sai. Before the uh, podcast begins, I just want to tell you that off camera, I asked him. I said, "How should I address you?" Because you know, I've seen some of your videos, and some call you Jay Sai, some call you Sai, some call you Sai Deepak. So I said, "Okay, how do I refer to you?" So then you've been kind enough that I can take your first name and refer to you as Sai. Um, so you know, I I wanted to have you long back on the podcast because. Almost every podcast that I have done, 20-25 of them, in the comment section, it's always, ma'am, can you please have J. Saidi Ma'am, can you please have J. Saidi I said, look, I'm going to have him, but only after I've read your book, because I'm a little bit finicky about such things that I need to read right. the book and get to know, uh, you know, what your point of view is. Uh, and you make very compelling arguments, if I may say, Sai. Uh It's very hard to completely disagree with you because you... You speak uh, you, and your, your theory, your, your your arguments are very sound, uh, if I may say so. Let's, so let's begin with this book, especially speci- uh, India, Bharat and Pakistan. So, um, you know, while reading this, um, as you know, I had uh, Vikram, also Vikram Sampath here. Uh, there's this whole host of books which have come out by Indic historians. Um, some say that it's, it's just too much too soon. Do you think uh, that's the case?
0: So first of all, thank you for having me over. Uh, I'm happy that someone's at least asked me how do you wish to be addressed and they've <laughs> got my name right. So thank you so much. Okay. Um, I think your podcast with Vikram was fabulous. Uh, Vikram, of course, is brilliant at his subject and I would say he certainly, uh, he fits the definition of a true blue Indic historian and he's taking forward the legacy of people like Dr. Meenakshi Jain and others in a very brilliant way. And I think people like Vikram and people of this generation Fortunately, we have the social media positional advantage which the previous generation did not have. And since they were uh gatekeepers of scholarship around that particular generation, uh they weren't the others weren't able to break through that that, let's say, that iron fort. Hmm. Fortunately, I think that Bastion has now been broken into. Now, uh, to respond to your question, I think uh the pace at which narratives are being set up uh citing, I would say, distorted history. Ever since what I would call the tectonic year 2019, with multiple developments back-to-back, August 5th, then you had the CAA, then you had the Ayodhya Judgment, then you had the status quo, and Sabri case, and whatnot. So much going on that uh, the central issue, in one way or the other, was always about the identity of this country. It's fundamental parichai. And therefore, I think it was imperative for these works to come out in quick succession, putting out multiple perspectives. Allow me to say this without an iota of false modesty. I'm certainly nowhere in the same league as Mr. Sanjeev Sanyal or Vikram Sampath or any of these people because they're brilliant at their own subjects. For instance, Mr. Sanyal, who's just come out with this brilliant book on revolutionaries of Bharat, who, who's great at economics and history. I am mm. approaching this more from the perspective of a practicing advocate Uh, trying to understand the underlying mentality in my own profession and our own approach to issues such as secularism, constitutional morality, so on and so forth. So uh, I genuinely believe that these discussions are timely and very, very relevant. I hope there are more voices that come out sooner because I think after a point, people might get jaded with the same set of voices and the same set of faces. They'll say, okay, we have heard his position. What more does he have to contribute? right? So that shouldn't happen. So the fatigue with respect to a particular face or a set of faces mustn't translate to fatigue with respect to the content of the perspective. So we need more voices. So I hope that the next few years, at least three or four years, we see more and more people coming to the fore who are able to take some of the seeds or Easter eggs that we have sown in each of these books, take it forward, dig deeper, and then come out with their own views on it. So I'd say, no, this is certainly not too soon or too much too soon. I'd say
1: this is the right amount. And perhaps we may even need more. Okay. Uh, I'm going to quote, I'm going to read out some extracts uh, during the course of this podcast. um, Stuff that I found interesting and viewers, uh, you know, you must buy this book. Uh, There'll be many things that, uh, that you might find more interesting than I did, but I'm going to Take out some, you know, you you say, uh, Sai, that history, and I quote, history tends to reward those with long collective memory. And you write in this book, uh, I'm going to go to this Bharatiya mind, which you talk about. Uh, It's on page nine, for those of you who want to see it. Um, You say this, that in the absence of this big picture, the Bharatiya mind, which is currently buried deep under three layers of coloniality, European, Middle Eastern and Nehruvian Marxist post-colonial will continue to consume popular, comforting and infantile fictions. I want you to elaborate on this infantile fiction. Uh, One such fiction which you mentioned uh, is the existence of the ganga jamuni Tehzeeb. The much-doubted composite culture composite cultural creature that is supposed uh, that is the supposed product of a syncretic relationship between Hinduism and Islam creating the so-called unique Indian Islam now generations of Indians have grown up on this you know listening to this that how lucky we are as Indians to have this Ganga Jamuni Tehzeeb. Now you come with this very uncomfortable truth, (laughs) which tries to shatter, uh, I don't know whether it has shattered or not, this fiction which you call. So please explain to me what this is about.
0: So during the course of my research for this book, I went through a huge learning curve. My preconceived notions about the so-called independent movement around that particular period, its leaders... Everything changed. Uh, The first thing that I realized is that this composite creature called uh, the Ganga Jamni Tahseep is a relatively new construct in our public discourse and which can at best be traced to the period between 1916 and 1923
1: Hmm.
0: and not before, nor after. Because you see, uh, until 1916, this much was very clear that while the Congress of that particular period wanted to project itself as the big tent of all sorts of ideas, uh, as long as it was, uh, let's say, seeking some kind of a home rule or autonomous governance for Indians, staying within the realm of, let's say, the 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 colonial empire, so to speak, the Muslim identity was crystal clear, I'd say largely clear, that I don't think the twain can meet. And one of the foremost persons to make this point uh, was uh, Syed Ahmed, Ahmed, because most people assume that it is the creation of the Congress which led to his own views on the two-nation theory. But the fact of the matter is, those views preceded the creation of the Congress by at least 50 years, thanks to his own education in certain seminaries. I've mentioned all those facts. Second, 1924 also turned out to be one of those years which translated into severe introspection on the part of several Indian leaders because they realized that um, in the process of supporting the Khilafat movement and the non-cooperation effectively was meant to further the cause of Khilafat, it was not meant for Indian independence. That much is very clear. Nobody can make that statement whatsoever because I've quoted Congress proceedings, I've quoted uh, Muslim League proceedings. This is a myth that needs to be busted and I think I've done that. When you see that, two things happened. One set of leaders from within the Congress effectively realized that they had created a, a dragon which was going to be difficult to reign in. And this dragon always, or rather they hadn't created a dragon, they had revived a dragon. Which, what is this dragon? This is the dragon that believes in the two-nation theory. Oh, okay. This is the dragon that led to the creation of Pakistan mm. which was always waiting for an opportunity to present itself, to reassert itself so that the parsham can be, let's say, resuscitated, so to speak, in Bharat. And the Khilafat movement coupled with the cooperation of the Congress under Gandhi or even before that by Tilak and others had given them that opportunity. Mm. From 24 to 46, you're looking at the movement towards the creation of Pakistan and the crystallization of the idea of Pakistan and the reality of Pakistan. I would only ask what Ganga Jamni Tezib. That's one. Because by 1946, the elections make it abundantly clear that the majority of the Muslim population had voted for the creation of Pakistan. And therefore, everybody who chose to stay back, stayed back for reasons of pragmatism and practicality, but not for patriotism as a position have already taken. Because you've already cast your ballot at, uh, let's say, you vote at the ballot, clearly with respect to a particular idea and its rectification. So can there be a clearer statement of intent and position? I don't think so. That's one. Now, I would then say that post-independence, mm the deification of this particular composite creature must be laid at the doors of the distortion of history helmed under Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru and the Marxist Nehruvian coterie of historians that he put together which actively sidelined people like R.C. Majumdar and others and then also to this particular cabal I would call the IPTA, the theater movement IPTA, yes IPTA, which had a lot of Marxist Muslims I think uh, Mr. Kafi Azmi was also part of this. And Balraj Sahani and all these people are part of it. And then I think Bollywood starts playing a huge, huge role in creating this. So we are told that Muhammad Rafi sang bhajans. And then we are told that uh, Norshah set music for some of these bhajans. and that They did, no? Of course they did. Of course they did. I'd say I'm not going to let a bhajan effectively come in the way of my larger picture of what happened in history.
1: That is something. I, I'm not going to buy that. Sir, if I may interrupt... Uh, you said it's uh it's in the 20th century right right that this Ganga Jamuni Gen- yes. Tehzeep. and there's no there's no re- reference earlier maybe not the term right but tell me the sentiment didn't agree suppose uh, it didn't exist suppose right. we were to just look back at say Akbar and Dine Elahi. right you you've written about that in your book uh right. you've gone into great depths about that right. but I'm just asking you because most people who've grown up think that okay there was this the syncretic culture which was there especially in the Ganga area
0: Right. the problem is whenever we choose to examine or unpack these issues I think somewhere the uh, the examination for causality goes for a toss so let me do a typical analysis here in terms of what is the cause and what is the effect this much is clear that there have been multiple waves of Islamization of the converted Hindu-Muslim population from the Hindu population. So, until that particular process of Islamization is complete, the converted Muslim who was previously a Hindu continues to hold on to his cultural roots and religious roots in one way or the other because he is not able to let go of the religion of his ancestors. Hmm. Now, this is sought to be presented as the accommodative facet or aspect of Islam, which is not the case because you have to go a few years forward and then you realize the next wave of Islamization removes even those vestiges. And that is what we see as Wahhabization. I'm sorry, it's not Wahhabization. It's the complete Islamization of the convert. Because we don't understand Wahhabism the way it is supposed to be. We see it as some kind of an extreme tangent of Islam, which is not the case. It has a significant following in this country. It has perhaps a greater following in this country at least since the 19th century than in Arabia. We don't wish to talk about it. That's a different issue. Okay, so that's one. Two, Dr. Ambedkar specifically says as much in his book, Pakistan of the Partition of India. Let me say this for the sake of public record that I have serious and several disagreements with Dr. Ambedkar. But I think on on some of those issues where I think I may end up agreeing with him is his reading of this mindset, the Islamic mindset and the origins of nation theory where he's he doesn't beat around the bush at all. So a lot of people who wish to quote him for multiple reasons somehow don't want to quote him for his views on Islam. They must read it. And there he is very clear That this composite creature is effectively the residual product of incomplete conversion of the Hindu to Islam. Hmm. That is his clear clear analysis. It makes abundant sense. Clearly, lighting of a lamp or breaking of a coconut hasn't come from Islam. These are native traditions which some people are finding it difficult to to let go of. But with every wave of Islamization and further Wahhabization or Wahhabization and hence Islamization, that wave goes. I'll give you an example from my own part of the country. In Hyderabad, there was a point where perhaps the burqa was common, but the hijab wasn't. Hmm. And you would rarely find Muslim men wearing the abaya. That's not the case anymore. You find it in the Hyderabad airport. You go to Mangalore, you'll find it. You'll find it in Tamil Nadu. Kerala has been the case for a very long time, by the way. Most people don't know this. So therefore, I'm asking myself, the visible symbols have changed. Is it your case that this is purely an external change? Or is it not the product of a change in the mindset? Then what do you make of the hijab controversy that happened recently? Could this controversy have been expected a few years ago or a few decades ago? Because our analysis is stuck in some kind of ossified time frame where we are saying, this is the golden period where this syncretic creature existed we are unable to see what happened before we are unable to see the existence of this period in the larger context and what happened later you at least extend the time frame and ask yourself the right questions i think the answers would be fairly clear comfortable or not is a different question
1: we just spoke about uh, the two nation theory you were just mentioning it Uh, most people would think that you know the two nation theory students those who are not students of history would think that Jinnah was the one who had the... At least he's the one who verbalized it more and made it more acceptable to Indians. He was the one who did the two-nation theory. Some who would have read a little more would say Sayyid Ahmed Khan. Uh, Shashi Tarur says it's Savarkar. So where did it origin? Where was the origin of the two-nation theory? And where is it now? Because even now it's being talked about. So I'll give you four names and four timelines.
0: Shah Waliullah Dhelebi was alive between 1703 and 1762. He passed away a year after the third battle of Panipat, after Shah Abdali left this country after having ravaged the place and after having destroyed what I would call the spine of the Maratha Empire. Sayyid Ahmad Khan passes away in 1898, September. Savarkar was born in 1883. Gandhi was born in 1869. Jinnah was born later. I would say he's perhaps a contemporary of Savarkar in that particular sense, junior to uh, Gandhi and way junior to Sayyadama Khan. Savarkar was 15 years old when Sayyadama Khan passed away. So you must credit him with a lot of genius to say that that 15-year-old boy created the two-nation theory. Right? Now that's not possible because most people believe that Savarkar and all those people who subscribe to his point of view don't have brains. So let's assume that's not the case here, right? Oh, then you go to the next Please issue. Please
1: listeners, if you are not watching this on video, Sai is being sarcastic out here. <laughs> so, okay,
0: yeah. So, Syed Ahmad Khan starts speaking of Hindus and Muslims as two races at the very least from his first book of 1858 where he traces the causes of the Bhagavat, namely the 1857 rebellion. But much before that, he is educated in a seminary called Madrasa e al which comes from or which is in Delhi, which is based out of Delhi. That institution is single handedly responsible for producing at least seven major Islamic movements in this country Ali Hadith, Ali Quran, Ahmadiyya, Bareilvi and the uh, Aligarh movement. Because all the founders are alumnus or alumni of this particular institution or have been taught by the gurus of this particular institution, or let's not call them gurus, teachers of that particular institution. And the records clearly show that they were significantly influenced by the teachings of one gentleman, Shah Valiullah Dehlevi, who passed away in 1762. So his children and his grandchildren take over this institution and are single-handedly responsible for keeping the tradition alive. It was Shah Valiullah Dehlevi who clearly said, I am perhaps a fourth generation descendant of Arab invaders i've lived in this country but i am not an indian in the sense he says i don't belong to this land obviously the word india did not exist then but he says i don't belong to this land he sees himself as an arab clearly says we cannot mix or intermingle with the local population under any circumstances because for two reasons one i am arab plus i'm a muslim so there is an ethno-religious sense of supremacism that pervades his thought process. Now we should ask ourselves, why is he so important to this entire discussion? He is important because from Diobandh to every institution of repute that you can name, which is of Islamic origin, so to speak, names him as their intellectual forefather in their own records and books. Yeah, And I've shown it from their own books.
1: Yeah, I'm going to quote this. Uh, I had pointed out, I had written it... Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't know that you were going to be talking <laughs> about it, but then I had already taken it out. He said, uh, in this, which I was going to come to this about the doctrine of jihad, and uh, in this, you've even brought Sirhindi, and he says that caused of Islam reformation revivalism establish re-establish Islam in Bharat um, in its most pristine form through strict adherence to the Sharia and by purging of it of. Heresies such as Sufi mysticism, attendant, un-Islamic beliefs and practices. You have gone into great detail about the influence of the Helvi in your book, which is very interesting. Yes, go ahead. So the Helvi comes out with two central philosophies which continue
0: to influence the history of this country and which influence the Khilafat movement as well as the partition of India. Hmm. So he specifically says that Islam mandates and requires the establishment of a caliphate. So that there is a centralized unified command, a chhatra so to speak, under which all Muslim rulers can function.
1: In this land?
0: Everywhere. He says a caliphate, Mm. a unified caliphate. Mm. And it starts with Bharat because this happens to be the biggest possession in their hands. Okay, that's one. Second, he says, along with the caliphate which will take care of the worldly affairs of Islam, you need a very strong ulema. So there's a very clear division of turf between the ulema and the rulers. He makes that. And it is the job of the ulema to set the Islamic house in order if the Islamic king strays. Mm-hmm. So he draws on all of that. And this man was a contemporary of Abdul Wahhab. Mm-hmm. Both of them learn the hadith from the same school and from the same set of teachers in Hejaz. Okay? So look at how the, this, the history, I mean the history of this particular period is incestuous. We read the history of Wahhabism as if it's in a separate silo when it comes to the Middle East. Hmm. But we don't wish to talk about what happened parallelly in Bharat. He's the one who translated the Quran into Persian. Persian. Correct. So that Why the- did he do that? Because by then, Persian has become the official language of the administration under the, the turco mongol Persianized Mughals. And therefore, he says, the, the the first thing that we must do is, as long as it is in Arabic it becomes difficult for the local population to read the language or read the book. And they will start, they'll be contaminated by the influence of their Hindu ancestors and Hindu neighbors. Hmm. So to prevent that infestation and contamination, let's say of that particular uh, pandemic or epidemic as he saw it, let us quickly convert this into a language which is more accessible. And therefore, he was the first one to undertake the translation of Quran to uh, Persian from Arabic. So this happens. Not just that, He's also crystal clear in his head that the only way I can ensure that the new convert remains true to Islam as it was followed by its earliest followers is by ensuring that their entire life is lived in accordance with the Sharia because Sharia reflects the religion in the manner in which it was followed by the earliest followers to Islam. This is how they see it. Hmm. And that philosophy is endorsed across the board. There's a multiplier effect with multiple institutions mushrooming all over the country. If you look at the map, on the cover page of the book, Mm. I've identified those regions which have been either influenced by this thought process or which are epicenters of seminaries which propagated the thought process. Mm. So when you have Dalavi already saying this, Sayyed Amakkan was a product of this. What are we talking about here? Why is Savarkar even relevant to this discussion? Jinnah is merely a third or fourth generation torchbearer of the very same thought process. Mm -hmm. But this also shows that Dalavi is perhaps a strong argument to make Because if someone who is so much trained in the religion and its scripture and has done this for a living, whose father compiled what is known as fatwai alamgiri under alamgir Aurangzeb, clearly and surely he knows more about Islam than you and I do. So I wouldn't say this is merely the contribution of Dalavi. Dalavi was capturing or encapsulating a political doctrine based on Islam. So ultimately it goes back to the central book, the root book. So, the, one of the founders of Jamia Millia Islamia, uh, which was founded, I think, in 1920, the backdrop of the non-cooperation movement, movement after they found Ghad Less Muslim. Aligadh Muslim University was found to be less Muslim and more British loyalist, and therefore Jamia was established. One of the founders was Sayyid shabir Usmani. He gave the first Quranic justification for the creation of Pakistan on the basis of the division of the world between the Kafirs and the Mumin. And you'll find a better exposition of this thought process in uh, Venkat Pala's book, Creating the New, uh, a New Medina, where he speaks of the period post-1937 until the creation of Pakistan. With all this before us, I refuse to believe that Savarkar or even Jinnah, Jinnah or even Syed Ahmad Khan was remotely responsible for this. They were only taking a certain thought process forward. Did, That's did, it.
1: Did, did, did they, uh, were they the ones who, or one of them or two of them, were they one, the ones who gave a, a kind of a politicalization?
0: hundred yes. percent.
1: So, which is why I would say,
0: so the first person to give it a very concrete political shape was Syed Ahmad Sir Hindi, who existed in the period of Akbar. But because Akbar existed and he was a powerful emperor, and the Mughal Empire was perhaps at its peak, at, I would say it was perhaps at its peak under Aurangzeb in terms of geographical expanse and all that, he did not find too much of traction. And since everything was going hunky-dory for the for political Islam, people didn't see the need to indulge him. Hmm. But when the chips are down for political Islam, the Ulema take up the mantle. And therefore, from the death of Aurangzeb in 1707 is when you start looking at the rise of political Islam under the guidance of Ulema. JUI is also Why were they
1: not influential during Akbar then?
0: So it's like this. When people believe that under a particular Islamic king, the flag of Islam and the flag of Mughals are flying high, let's not upset the, the apple cart, so to speak. Hmm. And plus, Akbar was a very powerful emperor. So, in the tug of war between the religious elites and the political elites, when the political elites are very powerful, religious elites are not going to find too much of traction from the public because they'll say, this man has ensured that Islam reigns supreme politically in this country. So why would you want to go around mm. troubling him at this point? But subsequent rulers end up getting even colorful titles like Rangila, Muhammad Rangila, so on and yeah, so forth, yeah, right? Yeah. Thanks to their lifestyle and everything else. That's when the religious elite say, at least now you must listen to us. Mm. So compared to his father, Abdul Rahim, who lived in the time of Aurangzeb, Shah Walula Dalvi lived at a time when the Islamic rulers were only Islamic in name. And we're happy doing or indulging in all sorts of debauchery. That's when he invites Abdali to invade this country because Marathas and Jats have reasserted their position. So he writes letters to three different people the Nizam of Hyderabad, I think uh, the Emir of Afghanistan in Herat, and then also perhaps, I don't know if he wrote to Turkey, then he writes to Abdali. Abdali is the one who comes here. So this tells me. The two-ration the theory is not a product of the 1900s. It's not a product of the 1800s. It's a product at the very least of the 1700s, going back to, I would say, the root cause.
1: The root cause. Okay. Uh, you've talked about the Delhi influence. Uh, tell me about the Wahhabi influence now. Now, on, on Bharat as Bharat. such. We are still talking about Bharat. We still not come to post-colonial. Colonial, the, right. Yeah, Because most people would think that Wahhabi influence came to South Asia or something with the Taliban, Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Karay, you don't karay to go back and say that what you were saying is right. that it was there way back. Correct. So tell me about the influence. So the thing is, uh, Wahhabism
0: became a moniker, so to speak, thanks to its propagation by the British after their ships were uh, set alight by the Wahhabis in Hejaz and the Middle East. Until then, they weren't aware of this particular strain of thought. Mm. Now, Wahab, Abdul Wahab and Shahulullah Dehlevi, since they were taught by the same set of teachers as far as Hadith is concerned, they go back to their respective realms and take the thought forward. One sees the gradual decline of the Ottoman Empire because it's competing with the Russian Empire, it's competing with the Habsburg Empire, and here the Mughal Empire is gradually falling. So the Muslim community, in two different foci, chooses to prop two different Muslim intellectuals who say the only way you can regain your power is by going back to the basics as far as Islam are concerned. Islam is concerned, and that is what is Wahhabism. For all practical purposes, say weed out all possible external external influences. So there are two specific influences they speak of. Other three: Turkish, Roman, and Hindi. Hmm. That is why I say that when they're asking for the removal of it, that's the next wave of Islamization. So Wahhabism is a process. The end goal is complete Islamization. How is Hindi corrupting that purity? Sufi practices. Mm. So there are two different aspects. One, uh, so for instance, when a when a girl attains Menash, that is celebrated in, in several parts of this country. That practice gains a lot more gaiety and festivity in Indian Islam. Mm. When it is practiced by practitioners of Indian Islam, they said, get it out of it. Marriage should not be celebrated with this kind of form. Get it out of this. This is the Hindu influence. So observe everything with sobriety. Anything that has color, light, music, get it out because that's the Hindu
1: influence. Was it, Were they effective? Were they successful? And but, until what point of time were they successful in history, you think?
0: So it's like this. So this thought process is accepted in several parts and is rejected in several parts. Yeah. So the portions of Indian Islam which reject the rejection of Sufi Islam are called the Barelwis, who say, No, sorry, these are practices which have come over the years, we will retain them. But you see, that's what I say in the book, that independent of their internal differences on these aspects, the one thing they're very, very clear about is that there are only two pillars of Islam, namely the Quran and the Sharia. That's it. And the identification of the outsider or the outgroup is fantastic, which is uh, Ahmadiyas, who we suddenly seem to have a lot of sympathy for in the backdrop of the CA, we're among the founding communities of Pakistan, by the way. They yes. say this as much on their own website. Yeah, Their leader as well as the leader of Bareilvi is all and they of them-
1: got their comeuppance when Pakistan was created. <laughs> True. Sorry to sound cruel, but anyway. Both of them say, in fact,
0: I think one of the leaders basically says, I may have my disagreements with you guys on several issues. But if I were to be asked to offer water to thirsty Hindu or a thirsty dog, I would prefer to serve the dog as opposed to the Hindu. This is the position. So this is the position of Hindu in the eyes of all these branches and sects, despite their sectarian disputes. So I don't care for their internal disagreements on the esoterics and metaphysics of Islam. I'm not on that. That's your internal fight. My question is, what does this translate to as far as I am concerned? And on that, there is no difference. Hmm. Everyone was very clear that this is the land where the flag of Islam needs to be revived. And for greater expansion of Islam in the Indian subcontinent, rather the Asian subcontinent, the the, the, the fortress has to be Bharat. And since they couldn't get Bharat in its entirety, the fortress that was established for the very same purpose was Pakistan, which is why Venkat Dulipala calls it creating a new Medina. So that this happens to be the epicenter from which Islam moves forward.
1: Right. You know, um, we you have gone into great depth about uh, the Bengal, the effect on Bengal. Like the first partition happened in 1905. Uh, I'm going a little bit into detail because there are many who live abroad who are, you know, listening in and they may not have studied Indian history so much in depth. Um the 1905 first partition then so you know that sowed the seeds and then you saw in 1947 uh you have east pakistan you have west pakistan then subsequently 1971 uh it becomes bangladesh, bangladesh right. right now i'm going to read uh, one part in your book uh 131 that uh, that you talked about uh you know like we when you were talking about uh, the reason I found this very interesting, even now when you mention, you know, about that the Sufi practices and things like that, even if today, you know, a young person going to Dhaka, you will see women all wearing saris, bindi. You know, it didn't get it. Somewhere that thing is still there about the cultural right. practices. It's not in conflict with that brand of Islam out there. You don't mm. see women in salwar kameezes. Right. You don't see hijab. Uh, all that much because that whole Bengali tradition, the language, right. everything, you know, you. Right. I mean, it's the only country to be born out of a language issue. Right. Anyway, so I'm going to read this out about the divide and rule policy when you talked, uh, you know, this thing about uh, in 1903. Uh, uh, Lord Curzon understood that demographic, religious and political implications of creating a Muslim majority Eastern Bengal and Assam and the originally stated administrative and economic reasons for the partition did not present the complete picture. Clearly, one of Curzon's stated intentions was to nip the nascent Bengali Hindu-led national movement in the bud by using Muslims of Eastern Bengal and Assam as a counterweight. Curzon was quick to realize its potential political benefits, such as breaking the momentum of Indian nationalism, the epicenter of which was Bengal. Uh, you know, uh, you even talked about A.C. Majundar's book and, you know, in which he corroborates Curzon's employment of the divide and rule policy and the gradual but unequal unequivocal reciprocation of the Muslims of Eastern Bengal to Curzon's overtures to woo them. Right. So this is what I was trying to get at when you were talking about link it to this whole Sufi thing. Divide and rule. It worked at every point of time, Correct. you're saying, right? It worked when in the Wahhabi and the Dehalvi period, it worked during colonial period. Now explain this to me. So the
0: first thing that I've tried to show through the book which I hope people have latched on to is, all the Wahhabis were Sufis. Shah Waliullah Dehlebi was a Sanat-carrying Sufi, which means he was ordained as a Sufi, into the Sufi order. His father was a Sufi. Ahmed Sarindi was a Sufi. A lot of people who led people into riots in Bengal were Sufis. Proper riots. And effectively, this missionary arm of this particular mindset has played a huge role both in softening as well as wielding the stick as well as the sword. That much is very clear from the documents. So it's very difficult for me to buy this Bollywood-presented uh, invention that when you think of Sufi, think of these dervishes with the long hats and the long robes just swirling around constantly in ecstasy. Sorry, <laughs> history is much more than this. people swirling. And, and it's very difficult. The bloodbath that they've caused is astounding. So... All these people who led the Wahhabi movement were Sufis. Let's be clear about that. That's Mm -hmm. one. Second, what am I trying to say? I am not denying the fact that the British indulged in the divide and rule policy. My qualification is it's not divide and rule policy, it's exploit the divide and rule the policy. Yeah,
1: exactly what I was trying to get to. Right? Is that what you were saying? Is that this division process had started long ago? It has always existed. Yeah. And therefore, when the British
0: realize that when there is a particular discord that can be used to their benefit to also prevent or let's say put some kind of a fetter on claims of a separate nation or a nationhood or asking, asking for home rule. What is the re- principle behind this? The British was very comfortable providing autonomy to those communities or those colonies which could lay claim to the to the status of being a single nation. And the definition of a nation is not what we understand it today. definition of a nation is either you're bound by a single language or religion or race or whatever it is, there has to be something which is homogenous across the board. So therefore, they said, first of all, Hindus and Muslims are not a single nation. Even within Hindus, you're not a single nation. That's the extent of their argument. It is around that period that Radha Kumand Mukherjee and everybody starts writing to say why Bharat as a civilization must be seen different from Europe's definition of a nation. So That's, that's diff- in your first book. That's that in my first book, be, yeah. right? Now, when he senses an opportunity in the Muslims of Bengal and Assam, who are willing to help him create a separate Muslim majority state or Muslim majority province as a counterweight. Now, I'm asking myself this common Bindi, the common Sari, the Rabindra Shangeet, or whatever Shangeet existed before that, all of that should have played a role. Hmm. We end up focusing too much on the softer cultural aspects without asking whether this has had the power to prevent a political tide. When the chips are down and when a, when a crucial decision is to be taken, have all these mattered? I'm saying it. they haven't mattered. This is peacetime discussion. Hmm. This is the discussion of the affluent and air-conditioned uh, atmospheres, drinking wine, saying, oh, this is the greatness of the composite culture of this country. When it mattered, it did not. Okay, did it matter when Operation Searchlight was going on in 1971? No, it did not. No. Right?
1: Okay, let's assume the, for a moment. Uh, For those who don't know about Operation Searchlight and Tikka Khan, please Google it and read about it because it is the most horrific uh, uh, incident that has happened in South Asia which the world has ignored. That genocide that happened then, please Google it and read about it because it's something that the Western world completely forgot and Bangladesh was not strong enough to talk about it and uh, the rest of the countries in, in, in Asia, including India, did not talk about it. So do Google and read about it. Sorry, Sai. So let's go before 1971. If this
0: cultural, let's say, impact was so strong, you shouldn't have had an Eastern Pakistan. Hmm. But you did. Why do we forget that Bangladesh was indeed East Pakistan? That means they decided to go ahead with that particular decision. Notwithstanding the common linguistic affinities and whatnot, they said, "Uh, we are throwing our weight behind these set of people who subscribe to the two-nation theory. That's one. After 1971 and after the creation of Bangladesh, has it seen greater protection for the Hindu minority there. In stark contrast, the Hindu population in Bangladesh has come down sharply. Every day you hear instances of rapes, forcible conversions, atheist bloggers being killed, so on and so forth. So, the Bengali affinity or the Bengali commonality isn't strong enough to prevail over the Islamic identity. Let's be very clear about that. Their ummahood reigns supreme. That is established by the partition at 1947 Did they say, we don't wish to live with Pakistan, we don't subscribe to the two-nation theory, we'd like to merge back with Bharat? In 1971, that's not their decision. That's not their decision post-1971. In fact, one of the ambassadors, I remember reading this as a school-going kid, effectively told this to Bharat, do you expect us to be uh, grateful to you for eternity for 1971? This was the tone of Bangladesh in late 90s and early 2000s. When it was not the Bangladesh of even today, which has some kind of an economy to speak of.
1: But why do we expect gratitude? We don't Isn't... expect gratitude. Yeah,
0: we are asking for decent treatment of Hindu minorities there. Mm. We are asking for some kind of restraint on illegal migration. We are asking for some kind of uh, restraint on the export of cows from here in an illegal fashion, and the cow slaughter that happens at Bharat's expense. Because pashudan may not matter to you and me, but it matters to the farmer. We have recently seen about 10,000 cows being repatriated from that particular part and that border is so porous. In fact, there's a specific paragraph where I say that the infiltration into Assam has to be traced to the partition of Bengal and the antecedents of the two-nation theory start from 1905 at the very least, which directly is traceable to what is happening in Assam at this point. So, when we look at Assam, so I think in in 2019, just before the lockdown, at the fag end of the year, Professor Faidan Mustafa and I had a public debate Hmm on the NRC in Assam, whose results had just been announced. And uh, this debate was organized at Nalser, of which he is the Vice-Chancellor. Now, I basically said, you want to look at NRC and Assam independent of the issue of Bangladeshi illegal migration. I'm sorry, enough literature says that's not possible. You need to look at it as a whole. Maybe 30% of the audience coughed at it. So, in part, I'm responding to that. I'm saying, here's the literature. Deal with it. So, when a country such as bharat as it exists today is the product of multiple bloody vivisections hmm. why do we look at each of these instances in isolation without understanding what are the larger dots to be connected here perhaps that is the central thesis of the book please learn to connect the dots
1: right uh, connect the dots when when you talk about uh, that you know that indian muslims stayed on in uh, pakistan uh, stayed on in india those who stayed on in india pragmatism was a major reason. Right. Many times it was like there was no option. Correct. Right? To go. Um, I had Asaduddin Owaisi on the podcast recently and as you know, he's very uh, vocal about his identity as an Indian and as an Indian Muslim. Right. Uh, now, he said this and I quote it. He said, the reason I asked him also is because, you know, the people call him the modern day Jinnah in India. It's a, it's a very rude way of saying it. But then... I think Jinnah was better. Head, <laughs> okay. So they said that. So he says that I my two-nation theory. So he talks about staying on in India that his parents did, his, his ancestors did, as a matter of choice, right. not as a, as a pragmatic move because of financial reason or whatever. They were financially well off. His family. Right. So tell me about this. That why you have a different take on this.
0: Well, the floodgates will open. So I hope I'll exercise my free speech to the fullest possible extent. Absolutely, please do. Right. So let's go to the first limb of your question, which is on, why did I make the statement that they stayed back for reasons of practicality and pragmatism? Hmm. The good part is, a lot of these people said this themselves. So there's a fantastic interview on YouTube of Maulana Madhuni, where he's speaking to a Pakistani journalist. And he was asked this very same question. Why didn't everyone move there? Hmm. What was the reason? He said that the uh, you're looking at a population which has stayed in this part of the world for several generations. They had their properties here. And they had their masjids here. And most importantly, he alludes to something which is very crucial. Most people don't even talk about it. At the time of the discussion of Pakistan... Even those Muslims who opposed the creation of Pakistan weren't doing so because they wanted to be part of Bharat, but because they believed that this entire land belongs to Islam. And therefore they said, why are you settling for one third of this when the entire thing was supposed to be Mughalistan? So it's not that we belong to Bharat, but the converse is Bharat belongs to us. Hmm. Rather, Hindustan belongs to us. Because it had been conquered. Conquered. And that reference is constantly there in every speech of Sayyid Amit Khan, where he said, we have ruled this place for 800 years. That's where this myth comes from, from his speeches. He says this over and over again. So when someone tells me, no, no, they stayed back for patriotic reasons, yes, but patriotism towards Bharat? No, patriotic, patriotism towards Mughalistan. That is what they say. Now, let's go to the next level. <laughs> Mr. Ravesi presents a very, uh, I'd say, a peculiar picture. Because his party is the legal successor or at the very least the ideological successor of the party founded by uh, this gentleman who fled to Pakistan, Rizvi, Ali Rizvi, a lawyer, who led the Razakars into the genocide of Hindus during Operation Polo. We should know this as people who come from Bhaganagar and Hyderabad, where we have seen our families and relatives being butchered at the hands of these Razakars. So they would come with serrated knives. You'll find Razakars being mentioned in two different parts of the world. Bangladesh, and in Hyderabad. Yeah. Okay. So Razakars, what they would do is that they would tie the male members of the family together and set them alight for the rest of the families to watch. This was the nature of it. The hostage population theory, or the critical uh, critical hostage population theory, was uh, pressed into service by the Nizam, where he used the Hindu population as the, as the bargaining chip with the Indian Union. That is exactly what is captured in the conversation between his Prime Minister and Vallabhai Patel. He said, you know what we'll do here and to which Mr. Vallabhai Patel says, what do you think we'll be doing here, right? So therefore, I, I think it's important for people to just unpack what exactly is Mr. OVC talking about. What are the antecedents of his party? Where did they take this discussion forward? There is an MIM and then there is an AIMIM and we are expected to believe that there is absolutely no relationship between the two. Why don't you release the documents, uh, the founding documents of your party and see who's taken charge from whom? Okay, let's take the converse of the patriotism argument. Did Hindus of Pakistan stay back in Pakistan out of patriotism for Pakistan, according to you? No. Knowing fully well what preceded the creation of Pakistan, what did they stay back for? Again, pragmatic and practical reasons. Which means they did not know how to escape because the wealthy people managed to escape. The ones who couldn't, they had to stay back. Now, where does the Christian population of Pakistan come from? They converted, hoping that the international community would come and save them, by the way, because they did not have a central Hindu organization to defend them. These are the origins of Hindus in Pakistan. Also, Jinnah
1: appealed to the Christians to clean the toilets. Exactly. So, because these converts... I don't think people realize this, that the reason Christians stayed back was because they were leaving in droves and there was nobody to clean the toilets because they were not willing to clean the toilets with themselves. And that whole famous speech of Jinnah uh, that everybody will be free to practice their religion was because of this. Right. And they never lived within the the living quarters or the living areas. They used to live outside and they continue to live outside the city limits. Now let's connect three dots. Mm. This is the reality in Pakistan. That's the reality of Valmikis in Kashmir.
0: And that's the realities of Shudras and Namashudras in Bangladesh. Which is to say the people who were left behind in these parts, the sensitive parts, were the ones who couldn't afford to leave. So there is a... um,
1: But Ovesi's family, like the others, could afford to leave. I'll come to that. Hmm.
0: Ovesi's family, you should, whenever you listen to his speeches, uh, please, uh, I would say, operate in compartments where you pay attention to his Urdu speeches in his jalsas first and then see what he says in his English speeches before in English channels. In Aurangabad, and in old parts of Hyderabad and other places, every time they start talking, they hearken back to the atrocities of Operation Polo. Akbaruddin Ovesi and Asasuddin Novesi constantly speak of this as if it's a, it's it's a holocaust that's visited the Muslim community. That's how you speak of the accession of the Hyderabad princely state under the Nizam to the Indian Union. People don't read or let's say watch those speeches. I've seen those speeches. I know Hyderabad the Urdu as well as any other person, so I know exactly what they're talking about. So what is being presented to the English audience is the sanitized version. Now, Sri Arun Shuri wrote a brilliant piece in his heyday as a journalist around the Ramzanabhumi period, where he spoke of how temples were destroyed and how history was whitewashed. He said, I went to the seminary's library in Dioban and other places. The Arabic version openly says, we destroyed this temple, this temple, this temple, this temple. He identifies all of that. Arabic to Urdu goes through the first round of distortion where the tone has come down a bit. From Urdu to English, it's gone completely. And then now we are being told... That uh, Ghazni came to Somnath to liberate the non-Brahmins from the Brahmins. This is apparently apparently he had to come 17 times to liberate people, mm. and not for the gold, right?
1: Now, when you look at all of this, again, sarcasm. listeners, <laughs> this is Sai's brand of sarcasm <laughs> out here when he talks about whitewashing of history. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it uh, you know there are versions now of uh, invasions Correct. that one is reading. Yes, Mr.
0: Salman Kushitan on. on on one of the summits, ended up saying that the uh, uh, the advent of Islam to India is not a story of invasion, but a story of migration. Apparently, that's what he said. Whereas we are being told it has to be treated as the Aryan invasion theory and not the Aryan migration theory. Anyways. Now, when it comes to Mr. Rovesi, when he says this, he is abundantly clear in several statements uh, on YouTube. He says, Dakhan Hamara Hai." Dakhan is Dakshan. Deccan. that's where it comes from. Because the Nizam was effectively the uh, the sword arm of the Mughal in the south the two regions that were dear to Aurangzeb were Bengal because he was the subedar of that particular suba and then Dakhan which turned out to be the graveyard of the Mughal Empire right because the Marathas had come up here the Vijayanagar Empire all of these people were here of course Vijayanagara precedes Babur that's a different mm-hmm. issue but the point is they speak from a sense of ownership and which is packaged and presented as a sense of patriotism please learn to distinguish both I don't buy this for one bit so he is the same person who rushes to Assam in Kokrajhar in, uh, Kokra in Assam in 2012 because he has to establish kinship with the Rohingyas and others or people who are being killed there or who people who were actually killing the others. Then there are riots in Mumbai uh, where the uh, the soldier memorial is destroyed around that particular period by members of the Rizvi Academy or whatever academy that is, or Reza Academy, he establishes some kind of sympathy with them. He immediately opens up camps for all these people. What is he talking about? I'd like to understand why is it that Mr. Ovesi always finds it in him to establish sympathy for the person who is writing? I don't see him talking to Tarek Fateh. For that matter, I think there are serious disagreements even with Mr. Javid Akhtar. But let me see if even Mr. OVC can find in himself the ability to find common ground with Mr. Javid Akhtar. That's not going to happen on several issues. One is a Marxist Muslim at least, that's what he claims. The other is, I'm a practicing Muslim. Everything is presented as victimhood. So, notwithstanding his uh, his let's say his gift of gab to present this as some kind of a sacrifice that they've made that we have not gone to pakistan we have stayed back here and all that his urdu speeches to his home audience and his home territory is very very different i mean those speeches reflect a very different side
1: and i'd say the true side perhaps see um you were mentioning even salman kurshi then uh, and we were talking about oac now there are there are many muslims who say that if we keep thinking about or if we go back to, okay, what are your origins? If you go back, as they say, you keep digging, digging, digging. Right. You go too much to the grassroots, you'll only get ants, and you'll get mud. No, right. So right. there has to be some. If you keep looking at all Muslims are people who are too poor to leave, right? Or uh, who were uh, who were avaricious, who thought that oh, we can have business opportunities, so let us stay back. Right. If you ascribe these motives to all those who stayed back, then there right. is no meeting ground. Then the divisions become more and more. Do you do you agree with that? I think there are some fantastic meeting grounds. So let me give
0: examples, hmm. Mr. KK Muhammad. Who has uh, reconstructed certain temples in Bhatias from other places in Madhya Pradesh? Who is who? Also says that I don't find any conflict between my origin as a Muslim and my current belief system. Abdul Kalam. Are in these examples worth citing? During his lifetime, Mr. Abdul Kalam wasn't exactly seen as a celebrated member of his community because he was making weapons for Bharat. He was comfortable with the Bhagavad Gita played the Rudraveena or the Veena at the very least. Now, these kind of examples don't work because these are the examples where the process of Islamization is still not complete.
1: But you're still not ready to accept it when it comes to Mohammed Rafi singing bhajans and all that you're saying. You won't see him as a...
0: I think when you choose to use Bollywood as an example, I'll say... Anybody you pay money there will do anything as long as it's meant for a particular role. I don't wish to see a professional performance which is meant for a particular payment or which is done at the expense of a particular consideration as any sign of uh, uh, let's say syncretic behavior. Why are we looking for that? I want hard examples here. Why are we looking for hard examples in a make-believe world? I'd like that in the real world where it truly matters. Okay, let's do something. There's a fantastic discussion uh, or a debate that happens on the Earth Litvist platform in 2019 with Mr. Ovesi, Mr. Subramani Swami, Dr. Subramani and myself and I was supposed to be the moderator there.
1: Please, I look, saw that. On, right? It's on YouTube. Yeah,
0: right. I'm not referring to any parts which are constantly uh, turned around in WhatsApp. I'm not on that at all. I think mm. it's done to death. When he was asked the question of what is the position of the rest of the Indian Muslims with respect to Kashmir and Bharat's relationship, see how wishy-washy he gets. Mm. So that means an elected member of the parliament who's been voted to Bharat's parliamentary body, its legislative body, still doesn't wish to commit to the cultural relationship and the civilizational relationship between Kashmir and Bharat. He says that's a complicated issue. I asked him about CAA. He doesn't want to acknowledge the fact that in Islamic republics, Hindus get a rough deal, at least in this neighborhood. He doesn't want to address that. I asked him if a specific legislation or an amendment comes out identifying a particular cause why don't you accept that this cause has a direct relationship with the identity of the country because then he would end up having to admit that Islamic republics give out a rough deal and a short end of the stick to Hindus at the very least in our neighborhood. He doesn't want to accept that. That is with respect to Pakistan and Bangladesh, he says that I've gone to Pakistan, I've spoken out against the terror activities of Pakistan, then why don't you acknowledge that it's the Pakistani state, which is the Islamic state, which is actually meeting out this kind of treatment to Hindus. Why doesn't he speak out against that? He has all the time in the world to establish kinship with Rohingyas. He has all the time in the world to establish kinship with Muslims across the world, including Palestinians, but not for Hindus in Pakistan and Bangladesh. But that reciprocal sentiment is expected from but Hindu that's leaders.
1: that's not spoken... No, forget oasi or forget Muslim leaders. Right. It's, not, it's not something that even Hindu leaders Agreed. in India uh, pick up. 100%. So we expect Muslim leaders to speak. Why should they... They're saying like, Pakistan, we don't have to Why not the Hindu leaders then?
0: You know what? I couldn't have made the argument better. I have always said this. I don't blame the Muslim community leaders or the founders of Pakistan for what they did. Because they had, they did what, according to them, was divinely ordained or scripturally ordained. Mm. I blame the Hindus for not doing enough and for not standing by their culture. That is the essence of the first book and the second book. That we are the ones buried under these degrees of coloniality where we find it so difficult to unabashedly represent our own position stand by our own culture. That's the problem. Okay, I have a question. Why is it that the Communist Party always chooses to field leaders who either come from the so-called savannah community and who are also from the Hindu background. Why don't we get to see people coming from the depressed classes of the society becoming heads of the Marxist party or even people coming from the Muslim background? Because it's the weaponization of the Hindu identity through the Marxist route. Because you get to say the exact argument you presented. Well, it's not the Muslim saying this. It's a person coming from the Hindu background who is making the statement. Immediately you become defenseless. That's how the legitimacy of the state of Israel is is undermined by using the American Jewish identity as a weapon against the Israeli Jewish identity. Because it's not the Muslim who's saying this. It's your own guy who's saying this. That's it. Then what do you do? The, the, the wind is taken out of, from your, out of your sails, no? That's exactly what happens. So, my point is, I find it useless to say that there is a problem with someone else. I say the problem lies within. Hmm and the problem lies within wherein we haven't produced enough committed intransigent hardliners who stick to the position of their culture as much as they are supposed to and each time the hindu society manages to produce them they are in the minority and they are isolated that's exactly the fight between the moderates and the extremists in the congress of that particular period the naramdal and the Dal, that's the distinction
1: moderates and extremists true even the uh, like when vikram was talking about that this the, the historians there was this shuddho and ashuddho list mm-hmm. So, this is what happens. Now, you are bringing up all the Ashuddhos, all of you Indic <laughs> historians. Do you get that a lot? That Why are you re- raking it all up now?
0: No. So, the reason
1: why… Uh,
0: so, whenever someone asks this, I say, fine, then give up the discussion on RN invasion theory. I have been purana, than to years, I have so, you it, a Right? You don't do that because that needs to be kept relevant for proselytization of the Hindu community and harvesting of souls. That needs to be kept relevant to keep the caste pot boiling. Right, You need to keep doing that. That needs to be kept alive to keep the language uh, barriers boiling between the north and the south. That needs to be kept alive for the aryan dravidian divide because it helps a particular camp in the south. So if history is so irrelevant, you don't bring it up. DK constantly brings up Aryan invasion theory in its current day publication, the Dravidakaragam. Which is the cultural arm started by Periyar, not Periyar, E.V. Ramaswamy. Right? All these people continue to speak of history. When there was a 27% hike in the uh, reservation in MBBS seats, this I remember when I was at 9th I, I yeah. or the 10th standard in yeah, the it, late 90s. When
1: I was getting into college at right? that time. Yeah.
0: Then placard spoke of Aryan invasion theory.
1: 5,000
0: hmm. Chazar, Saal, we have a Malay Khaib, we have dhaka, This was the placard. Now, history is not relevant there, it's on the streets tell me which part of this country and which discussion of this country is free from discussions on history, then I will stop talking about history. It's not. The, the entire purpose is to ask myself, where do these problems come from? How many of them are fissures within? How many of the? How many of them have been created by the outside actor? Hmm. And two, are we now seeing a repeat of history? Is a 100-year cycle back? Are
1: we living in the age of Khilafat 2.0 is the central question that I'm asking. Okay, that's pretty frightening. (laughs) Okay. Uh, You know, you talked about hijab. Uh, This is going to come up again because we are going to see elections in Karnataka. So the whole hijab issue is going to come up. But you talked about how hijab was something that was, you know, you didn't see this when you were kids. You didn't see so many women in hijab in Hyderabad, in the city of yours, or or in uh, my uh, city of origin, which was, uh, you know, in Karnataka. So we didn't see so many, but you're seeing more and more. So, but however... Uh, those who defend uh, more girls wearing hijab today, uh, is they say that it's part of Islam. It's something that they are choosing to do. That right. Um, you also spoke about, uh, you know, uh, like we said that m- many people don't know about Wahhabism that it was existing. Another thing which, uh, when reading your book, I saw was that the role of jihad in Indian history. Now, many students of history, you know, who are not students of history would think that jihad was not prevalent in India at all. That this is something that came in when, again, Afghanistan, when that happened, that movement happened. Correct. But in your, uh, you talked about jihad in North India. I will read out a part and then you explain to me. Um, This is uh, in page 26. uh, You say for several years after Bareilvi's death. 1831, we've gone into Barelvi quite an extent. Uh, It was a practice in Muslim families, especially in northern Bharat, to either earmark a portion of their earnings as their contribution towards jihad or to send their men to participate in the war at least a few months. This is not so different from the present-day trend of individuals from certain communities being sent to fight for the ISIS. Now you tell me about this now. You tell our viewers, listeners about how jihad existed in India. It's not a new concept for Indians. So
0: the thing is, uh, Syed uh, Ahmed Sarhindi and Shah Waliullah Dehlubi, they create the doctrine, the political doctrine. Now it needs to be actioned and implemented. Now that gets actioned and implemented by uh, uh, this gentleman called Syed uh, Shahid Barelvi who died at a place which everybody knows now is Balakot on 6th of May 1831 and that death is the reason why it becomes the training ground for jihadis that's why let's say you have all these people going there as if it's a shrine I'll tell you why it became a shrine later but this gentleman uh, is hes his origins are traced to the prophet himself in his genealogy uh, by the seminaries of this country they explain that he is the 36th generation descendant of so and so, so and so they mention all of that this man becomes a student of a descendant of uh, Syed, Walula, sorry, Shah Valiullah dehlavi and he starts a preaching tour you see the man couldn't read or write and members of his community interpret this as a divine sign because apparently the prophet also couldn't read and write And therefore, they said, this is uh, the the blessing of the divine himself. This is a karamat. And so he starts his preaching tours. And he effectively puts into action Dehlawi's vision on the ground. So what does he do? So his preaching tours go to all the places in Uttar Pradesh that you associate with seminaries now. Okay. Gango this place that place i mean the, the ganga Germany the so-called Ganga jamini region is his uh, let's say his uh, hmm. experimental ground that entire region then he goes to different parts of the country but the one part which he goes to which translates to establishing a fantastic infrastructure is Patna hmm. because Patna was then called Azimabad because uh, Azimabad, I think, is perhaps the name of a grandson of uh, Shah Jahan or something, hmm. or maybe some descendant of Aurangzeb. But that's what it was called before. Previously, used to have the Azimabad Express. So people think Patna before Patla Patliputra and uh, Patliputra. Uh, Patli Patli uske baad Azimabad, uske Bat, Patna, Patna. Patna So people hmm. think Patna ke pele putra Noi nee, bhai, beat me. To medieval, medieval period tha na. So to kustu hua tha So badal So he goes to Patna, and then there is a a family. Of four or five brothers mm. who are so enamored by his teachings who now decide that we will commit ourselves to his teachings. Now his teachings are not just to uh, let's say Islamize the Hindu or rather the Indian Muslim more, but he wants to collect an army to fight the Sikh Empire in Punjab. Okay, because the Sikh Empire has created trouble for the Muslim empires of India as well as to Afghanistan. And since the Pathan has always been seen as the sword arm of the Indian Muslim, and uh, Syed Ahmed Khan says in his speeches, if ever we get into trouble, the tribes, the lashkas from Pathan will come and help us. That's a statement, by the way. And they were they they requested for them also. They requested point, I for think? them. Yeah. And even Barelvi uh, mm. requests for their help yeah. as well. Right? He asks for it and he gets it. Mm. So there are two brothers. Mm. So Indian history has seen two pairs of brothers. Mm. Both of them go by the name Ali brothers. Mm. The second set of Ali brothers are around the Khilafat period, with whom Mr. Gandhi has a fantastic relationship. And the first set of Ali brothers are direct disciples of Barelvi. Hmm. They established, according to me, the finest and the most well-entensed Wahhabi network across the country. In the south, in the west, in the east and in the north, across the board, for funneling of money, for collection of arms for indoctrination of people and for collection of soldiers to be recruited for the fight against the Sikh Empire first and then the British Empire. Their movement is single-handedly the reason for the uh, enactment of the sedition law in 1870. Mm. It was to fight them that the sedition law comes into existence and that's what I've explained in the book.
1: The origin of 295 The origin
0: of 295A comes from them not to fight a non-violent peaceful people. <laughs> what threat was the Congress posing to the British? Nothing. They were seen as collaborators of the British. They were established by the British, so it made no difference. But it's to fight them. So they connect. Uh, they collect all the money. So Barelvi goes to uh, uh, goes to what is uh, what is known as sorry, Ghazni. He goes to Ghazni, and he pays his respects to Mahmud Ghazni. He goes and stays. He in... goes and stays there, pays his respect at the mausoleum of Ghazni, and they are not even connected. But but he finds a kinship, kinship there, right? This man then starts the jihad. He believes that the only way that we can action this is by bringing back the implementation of the doctrine of jihad, which is an essential element of establishment of political Islam. So, Dehlevi makes it abundantly clear, his intellectual godfather, that an Islamic state cannot function without wielding the sword of jihad. It needs that because it it creates the way, it clears the path. So, Barelvi also carries swords on his person so that he sends a message to his followers that militarization of the Muslim community is essential. All of this happens. So Jihad has been around for such a long period. Now the most modern, educated, sophisticated exponent of the centrality of Jihad is Mawlana Abul Kalam Azad, the first education minister of this country, who was a Wahhabi. Hmm. And that I've explained in the book. Because he follows... Uh, he was a Wahhabi at the outset, that's the first thing. And the second thing is, he also is a follower of the other, uh, uh, let's say, figure that I mentioned of the 19th century, Afghani. Both these people effectively decided that why are we constantly emphasizing on the pacifist nature of Islam and that's not the case. Jihad is a central doctrine. And it's not as if it's an internal fight to the demons inside. It is a very clear military doctrine the establishment of an Islamic caliphate requires the centrality of jihad to be uh, revived. All of these discussions happen. This discussion goes on from the mid-17th century and right until Maulana Abul Kalam Azad, who was presented as a nationalist Muslim to us. And I think he is the ancestor of uh, Amir Khan. Anyways, the point is, Amir Khan's son is named as Azad. I think the surrogate son, I think, Hmm. is, is called Azad. So the point is, jihad is misunderstood when we speak of wahhabism when we speak of jihad you see what we start doing is it must have started only after the russian invasion of afghanistan and then taliban was created and that spilled over into kashmir the existence of the uh, of rather the presence of
1: wahhabis in the 1800s in kashmir is is documented i have heard very very senior government functionaries at international fora Say that jihad did not exist in India, and no <laughs> Indians went as mercenaries, or no Indians brought mercenaries into India. Now what you're saying is that that is that is a farce that did, it's, it's always happened for I would say those are years. the
0: compulsions of running a secular government. I leave it at that. Hmm. but if they really want to speak facts on history, I'd say, please let's not have this discussion. One of us is bound to be embarrassed. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> hmm. All I would say is the document so there is a fantastic book. Uh, called Partisans of Allah by uh, Aisha Jalal.
1: Yeah, you quote Aisha uh, Jalal uh, extensively in the book. In, uh, in this Jihad in South Asia, she's written about. Correct. It. Yeah. There you will see, <coughs> and I've uh,
0: quoted even Sana Harun, hmm. she clearly shows that each of the founders of Taliban were the products of seminaries established by Diobandis in those parts of the world. Hmm. Because you see, Dioband was attracting heavily people from Afghanistan. Hmm. Okay? Considering that, it is possible to make the argument, and I would say one of the persons that you must read, one of the journalists whose work I follow regularly is Vicky Yeah, He's written extensively on this. Hmm. And he agrees that we think it's a relatively recent thing, but it's part of a longer phenomenon. So neither jihad is new to this country, nor wahhabism is new to this country, So which is why in the introductory portions of the book I've clearly said, I am going to make the case here that somehow we seem to be uh, valuing in this comfortable notion that neither jihad nor wahhabism have any Indian connections but let's b- bust that myth and make this discussion as uncomfortable as possible so that these secular myths are busted as early as
1: possible Yeah, very very Ashuddho Sai <laughs> <laughs> so okay uh, Sai you mentioned Balakot uh, right. you know and uh, I'm going to read out a portion of that um, you know uh, for those who don't know about Balakot it's the same Balakot that Sai talks to talks about which in February 2019 we had the uh, cross border strikes um and uh, he says in this is where he says that uh, history tends to reward those with long collective memory uh, now while mentioning uh, Balakot, uh, you know, he talks about Aisha Dalal's book, which we just discussed. Uh, he, uh, and this is a quote from there. It says that Balakot, in many ways, is the epicenter of jihad in South Asia. It's also a point of entry into the history of jihad, uh, struggle in the way of Allah in the subcontinent. It was here that uh, Sayyid Ahmad of Raibareli, 1786 to 1831, and Shah Ismaili, 1779 to 1831, Quintessential Islamic warriors in South Asia, South Asian Muslim consciousness, fell in the battle against Sikhs on 6th May 1831. Uh, And uh, Sai talks about this battle of Balakot, where uh, Prince Sher Singh uh, was leading the Sikhs and uh, Barelvi was beheaded and Shah Ismail Dehalvi was uh, also killed out here. Uh, Balakot was the was the epicenter of terrorism hundreds of years ago is it coincidence then that india decided to attack balakot or history <laughs> there was there was a mark that the bjp government wanted to make or the I... nsa or the defense establishment do you do you see a connection at all I don't think that the uh,
0: establishment was operating from a sense of historical consciousness. I think they were operating from a more strategic perspective because Balakot was and remains the training ground. So mm-hmm. the only way to send a strong message is not by killing the foot soldiers, but by killing the teachers themselves. For
1: hundreds of years, Sai? That, 100%. Yeah.
0: That has been the case. So the Swath Valley and its centrality in providing home to the Wahhabis of that particular period, Malka, Sitna, all these places, they are not new
1: they are not the creation of the 1980s so not just the seminaries you're talking about even training ground training for grounds. militant islam yes okay huge hmm. because they have always
0: depended on the lashkars and the tribes to provide them with the cannon fodder hmm. right and therefore they've established their institutions there the british struggled to kill them there each
1: time they would go they would raise it to ground they would burn it to ground and they'll come back again hmm there's been going on and on and on and that's why there's no industry no development in those areas because historically of course the, there's an the industry
0: it's just a terror industry
1: it's <laughs> <laughs> okay the military jihad uh, complex complex right now that has served them historically and it they continue to provide that cannon fodder that you call correct right in Balakot so when when uh, Pakistan put out those pictures and said hain, and not anything significant they right. were lying correct they couldn't have
0: admitted that such a central spot was hit. Hmm. And because, as I said, it just it doesn't have just a strategic uh, significance, it also has a spiritual significance and I'll explain why now. Now you see, when uh, Barelbi was beheaded, they couldn't find either the body or the head. One of these two things was missing. And again, they said, miracle. It's miracle. Miracle, okay. Like Kabir. What can't be explained must be attributed to miracle. Okay. And so it became a shrine. So people would go there to pay their respects and not just the jihadis, people would travel all the way from Bengal, from Uttar Pradesh and other places to go pay their respects. Now when someone tells me minority, fringe, people are contributing by way of money. Syed Amal Khan's family celebrates the fact that the Muslim community of that particular point of time was celebrating men and money or rather supporting, uh, contributing men and money to the Wahhabi movement. He says this in his book. In 1847, he says this in his book and after the rebellion of 1857 when the British came down heavily on all these people, he redacts that portion of the book in the subsequent edition. He is celebrating the death of the very same person you read out, Shah Ismail Dehlavi. That Dehlavi is the grandson of Shah Walula Dehlavi. Shah
1: Walula, yes.
0: This is the history. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: How much are we going to be subjected to distortion further? Mm -hmm. Now, the important thing for people to understand is this is not an academic discussion no. what you're doing is to say, it is a continuing problem. It's a continuing issue. Hmm. And if you choose to close your eyes to this and behave like an ostrich, that doesn't mean that the facts are going to change. It only means you're closing your eyes to your own detriment and to your own peril. I am not here to self-fear psychosis. I have present... So the book has been around for four and a half months now. It was launched on the twenty third of August. Mm-hmm. I have extracted primary sources. Yeah. Why can't people count to me on these facts? Let people show that these primary sources are lies. They won't be able to because these are extracts from the official translation of the Muslim League. Even your lawyer community,
1: your <laughs> the other lawyers are now terrified that your book is now going to uh, form a part of, you know, uh, the academic uh, criteria or necessary reading for lawyers. So they are all very worried. And I'll then,
0: actually give them the bad news. The bad news is Cambridge has accepted both books as part of its library, digital
1: <sighs> library. Terrible news for Terrible them. news, no? How are you going to deal with this? How are you going to deal with And this. your fans are saying that, look, <laughs> counter him on facts. Because your book, you have quoted God knows how much research that has gone in. In both your books, in fact, you know. Right. So, it's it's hard. They are uncomfortable truths. Let me tell you this. Like, they, it's not... Whenever you say things, uh, say when, when you just said on Azad, Ab- Abul Kalam Azad. Even your views on Mahatma Gandhi, they are uncomfortable, Sai, if I may say so. Correct. Because anything that you know, you've know you learned since childhood, right. You there is a comfort factor. Your teachers taught you that. Your parents taught you that. You know, When you're saying Mahatma Gandhi mm. and then you hear Sai, <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Tell me.
0: I would say, uh, have you watched this movie Matrix? Yes. I'm learning from Morbius hmm. and who's giving you the red pill hmm. and who's telling you, you're living in the matrix. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and is unplugging you from the matrix and was basically saying, This matrix has been created by a combination of three factors history textbooks, the sanitized political discourse, uh, collective amnesia of this particular civilization, and the fourth X factor, Bollywood. Okay, namely soft culture, pop culture, so to speak. Not just Bollywood, it's just a representation. Through books and whatnot, we're constantly fed this nonsense. You speak of a Zakir who said, and say, This he's the product of syncretic tradition. I'd say, you know what he is comfortable doing the saraswati vandana uh, all the singers and of uh, the khans of that particular tradition are doing are comfortable doing all of that because it's part of the particular tradition they've imbibed that particular tradition but if you were to ask their core religious if they approve of it they'd be the first ones to be subjected to a fatwa i am not the one making this argument how many people want examples he's to... living in california it's very easy correct you know? I, I i don't know if he could live in pakistan or even in kashmir for that matter uh, if uh I don't know how many people remember this. Every time an Indian cricketer celebrates a Hindu festival, despite being a Muslim or for whatever reason, just go through his comments, no? yeah, Just go through the comments and the hate mail that he receives. Take a look at that as well. You see, the thing is, I don't have a problem with the good parts that exist. I'm only saying don't turn a blind eye to the parts which are dangerous, which are problematic. So... Uncomfortable truths, I would only say that perhaps we are a crossroads generation whose comfortable worldview is completely being shaken.
1: Sai, uh, intellectual elites become very uncomfortable with people like you. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, we had, I had Anand uh, Ranganathan here and uh, Abhijit also. And uh, they were like, uh, you, people like you and Vikram and all, there was no hava to what you were saying. There was no oxygen provided to your books not publishers, not literary festivals and now those intellectual elites have to now accept that you're part and parcel of the conversation. So there are three things. Hindu belief system says
0: that some generation benefits from the prayers of the past and I would say that we are benefiting at the expense of the bitter lives and deaths of previous uh, brand of historians of the previous generation of historians who did not get their due. Mm-hmm. so I would say as I did in the introduction of the first book that this is an ode a shraddhanjali to all those stalwarts including Sri Shori. for him to have done what he did in the, in the period that he was active fantastic amazing for someone to take those positions you know your fraternity better than I do so the less said the better mm-hmm. so all I'm going to say is we are benefiting from that and two. The age of social media, apart from all the garbage that it is produced, has also given birth to democratization of opinion. Which means I am no more at the mercy of the editor who chooses to cut, paste, or let's say chop my letter to him and then puts it in a fashion, uh, a manner that is suitable to his own uh, ideology. That's not happening anymore. Three. Did it happen to you? Several times. Okay. Articles uh, which were solicited were returned. I never said I want uh, I want space. Give it to me, it doesn't, I mean it doesn't make a difference to me. I'll create my own space. But you asked for it. I gave it. You couldn't handle it. Hmm. They were returned. For one reason or the other. Aaj space. Hai. Koi aur mudda hai. It's okay. Koi baat That's okay. <laughs> okay, point three that you were making. <laughs> right? Three is uh I would say that the audience has had enough of this nonsense. So there is an audience that is hungry for this content. Which is why I loop back to your first question. Are we producing enough content to keep pace with the hunger of the audience? Actually, no. Mm. There's a greater opportunity here. They want decolonization of culture. They want decolonization of music. They want decolonization of history. They want decolonization of language and whatnot. Because we have just barely skimmed the surface. The surface of the surface at this point.
1: Is there an age group that you're seeing this hunger for more information? Are they just youngsters who are saying that, you know, we've we got only one side of the picture? Or are you seeing middle-aged people, older people 13. too? Yeah.
0: yeah, 13-year-olds. 18-year-olds doing a fantastic job of critiquing my book in a very constructive way.
1: That jigyasa is yes. that word.
0: So from that age group till the, I'd say the late 70s. Hmm. they're saying finally we are we we managed to see this before we pass away and then this generation is saying oh this also exists now the one thing that allow me to make this humble correction litfus uh, litfus are no more able to <laughs> ignore us yeah no absolutely and the reason is what can you do when the public is accepting this content You're not able to accuse me of plagiarism, which is your standard go-to trope, because I'm an IP lawyer by practice. Come after me and I'll rip you apart. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take you to the cleaners. Then, on content, I'm saying, I'm not claiming uh, expertise here. I am standing on the shoulders of giants. I am doing what any scientific publication would do, which is citation, 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 citation. 900 footnotes and endnotes. Deal with it. And these are... You can't even go after the central literature because a lot of it comes from Pakistan.
1: Yeah, you've got that too not just Majumdar not just Majumdar I've gone to Pakistan I've gone to Muslim publishers I've
0: translated as much as possible all of this has happened so I would say that I wouldn't want to take credit for what's happening Hmm. there's a willing audience all I have done is tried my best to cash in on that particular momentum Hmm. to ensure that the content satisfies their hunger to the best of my abilities and my limited abilities so I hope more and more people come out. This is merely 1.0. We need better people doing this, trained oh. people doing this. As a full-time lawyer and a practicing advocate who spends about 12 to 13 hours in court, what I'm doing is part-time. Mm. And I will do this only part-time because I have no intentions of transitioning to a writer an author. I don't want those brands. I'm very comfortable with my identity as a lawyer. I'm in love with it. So I don't want it. But you need people to do this full-time. A few years ago, I happened to attend this uh, small lecture by Sri Michelle Danino who was part of the ICHR then Hmm. under this government and then he came out after his term he said we don't have epigraphists we don't have archaeologists we don't have people who know Indian languages we don't have people who understand old Sanskrit so on and so forth those are primary scholars
1: Hmm.
0: in the priority list of scholars I'm somewhere in the 10th or the 11th rank this is the grade that we want but the politics surrounding this discussion prevents the talent from going to this particular scholarship because everybody is saying, if I take up Sanskrit as my study, will I not be branded as Manu Wadi, Hindut Wadi, wadi this wadi and that wadi? So I am basically saying, I will fight this battle. Others who are better qualified, please go and also study. Also,
1: rosy roti, no? Correct. I mean, you, you need a job. You Correct. need to work unless you're one of those elites who you know i mean we were talking about your law profession i mean the the book india bharat and pakistan uh, it talks about the constitutional journey of a sandwiched civilization now you know ambedkar periyar uh, roy they were all uh, eminent lawyers if i'm right. not mistaken and they were they were intellectual giants also and they were labeled in their lifetime but if hypothetically speaking suppose they were there today would they also think that our constitution needs to be shaved off of these colonial uh, layers that we have? So, I don't see eye
0: to eye on anything with E.V. Ramaswamy. Hmm. I don't, uh, and I think he was someone who needed to be dealt with and on a very serious basis because he has entrenched this fault line of the Aryan Dravidian myth in Indian politics. And it's an extremely poisonous, pernicious, malicious myth. So I'm never going to be able to call him Periyar the way I can't call Gandhi Mahatma. Uh, in fact, he would have been the first one to attack me for both my books, just as his followers are. Right? Uh, as far as Dr. Ambedkar is concerned, uh, he's a mixed bag. He may agree with a few things. He wouldn't have on quite a few things, including on my positions of what he thought was the reality of the caste or the history of the caste. At least I would say I know neither Sanskrit nor do I know tradition or the Shad darshanas of the Hindu philosophy properly. So I'd be very careful about making any comment about these subjects. And he admitted that he was not trained in any of these subjects and still he would he went on to make serious comments about these subjects. Which is where he had a massive dialogue between himself and Gandhi as part of annihilation of caste. Where he finally said no I have not read Sanskrit. My primary source is Satyat Prakash and Saraswati. This is all he has been able to say. So I'd say the one thing that about dr ambedkar perhaps i would say is if he had been uh, debated or engaged with perhaps he would have changed his position in his own lifetime that's a possibility but the sad part of the current uh, reality is so called ambedkarites are not even half as red as dr ambedkar And they are not as open to engagement as Dr. Ambedkar. To that extent, I will limit it because even on Dr. Ambedkar's contribution to the Constitution, I'll speak about it in the third and the fourth books, because there's a lot that has happened. Hmm. There's a lot that we have inherited. So how much can we give credit to a particular individual for having drafted
1: the entire Constitution? I'm not sure of it. Okay, Sai, we talked about, uh, you know, um, the origins of, or the, the, what should I say, about Article uh, uh, 295A, Mm. uh, and uh, that it's kind of, you know, the... what should, blasphemy provision? Yes, uh, in the constitution that we have. Those of our uh, viewers, listeners um, living abroad who don't know about it now. Two ninety five a deals with uh, deliberate and malicious acts intended to outrage religious feelings of any class uh, by insulting its religious or religious beliefs. Now, this there is uh, according to the Indian Penal Code. Destruction, damage, defilement of a place of worship or an object held sacred with intent to insult the religion of a class of persons punishable with imprisonment, which may extend to two years uh, or with fine with both. Now, this is used a hell of a lot when it comes to the hijab issue, when it comes to everything when about blasphemy. Now, what are your views about this? Right. Time to change it? Time to What should we do?
0: So just a small correction, previously you mentioned uh, 295A, I mentioned uh, section 124A of the IPC, oh, which wow, deals okay. with sedition. Yeah, sedition. So here section 295A of the IPC, that I'll be dealing with in the third book, because that deals with what happened around 1924, hmm. around the Khilafat period, when uh, Swami Shraddhanand uh, is undertaking the reconversion of the Malkana Rajputs and all that back to the Hindu fold. So effectively, he was undertaking garvapsi as an Arya Samaji. All of this was happening. So the I think uh, tempers were frayed, the tensions around that particular period. And you have to realize that undivided Punjab was Muslim majority. No wonder it contributed significantly to the territory of Pakistan and electorally as well. So a very nasty pamphlet is issued by members of the other community on Sitama. It is in response to that that Rangila Rasool gets published. And that leads to the litigation and that leads to uh, the murder of the editor, so on and so forth on the uh, the steps of the court itself. All of this happens. Now, obviously, then the government of that particular period with the support and uh, the advice of Mr. Gandhi who said we need a legal provision to address blasphemy. So blasphemy comes with significant contribution and input of Mr. Gandhi.
1: So that's the other one ninety. This is two ninety five A.
0: Two ninety five A only. only huh? to, this is okay. two ninety five A. Yeah. Sedition is one twenty four. Okay. That comes to address the Wahhabi movement. Okay. This is okay. This is later. Now you have to realise that before that something else happens. I think it's in nineteen twenty hmm. one. Nineteen twenty one or twenty four, I don't remember exactly. So the ninth chapter of the book, I would say please read it, and it's a crucial chapter. Ninth chapter.
1: Ninth chapter. It's uh, a uh, Malabar, Gulbarga, and, and Kohat, Kohat. The two nation theory and in, in action. action. Correct.
0: Yeah. Now you should read the portion uh, about Kohat first because Kohat is in NWFP. That's
1: 484 page, which is like with Maligaon and Gulbarga.
0: Correct. Yeah. So there, what happens is around Krishna Ashtami, or janmashtami Remember that by that time the Muslim population of that particular place comes down to seven, uh, 93 percent. And Hindu population is 7%. That's it. They're outnumbered heavily. Someone writes a nasty poem on uh, Shri Krishna. In response, members of the Hindu community, and I think Sanatana Dharmasabha, Sabha, a gentleman, Ram Jivan or Jivan Ram, I don't remember, he responds in kind. Immediately, fatwas are issued. And uh, just as it happened in Malabar, Literally, they were beating drums to invite people from the neighboring villages to finish off the Hindu population there. The Hindu population doesn't know what to do, so the heads of the community of the Hindu population, they go and they make a public apology, saying this was a mistake, forgive us. But no, three days burning, looting, raping, ransacking, it goes on, no support or help from the British government. SOS calls go out over and over again, nothing happens. Then after the third or the fourth day, when they realize what's happening, I think from the Rawalpindi cantonment, the British uh, armed forces come in and they evacuate the entire population, which means there is no possibility of them continuing to live there. That's how almost the exodus of Hindu exodus of Kohat happens. That is effectively what Kohat
1: ha- is in Pakistan, Pakistan, current day Pakistan, in case people don't know. Correct.
0: Yeah. And you should see the exchange between Lala Lashpatra and Mahatma Gandhi during that particular period. Mahatma Gandhi is telling the Hindus who have come from Kohat, don't go back until the uh, Muslims of Kohatar uh, are in a position to welcome you back so don't go back and I think they've not gone back still mm. now coming to Punjab fortunately the Hindu population was not in this micro minority region it was not 7% it was significant mm. so therefore there was a retaliation mm. saying that since we are in decent numbers we too can respond now and then when they realize that this if, this, if this goes out of hand you're effectively looking at a mini civil war kind of a situation and so blasphemy as a law comes about now coming to the current day relevance and the contemporary relevance of it. On a daily basis when you look at twitter and quite a few handles
1: and i'm talking about relevance only in india in pakistan it's a different ball game altogether, altogether correct yeah. correct and the origins are from undivided india undivided india
0: yeah now one of the things that i think uh, sri dr anand Ranganathan and i had a, a discourse come debate or a discussion come debate on the subject in pune earlier yeah, I saw late that. last year yeah. right It is my belief, and I come purely from the protection of the Hindu interest, despite being a practicing lawyer, but as a practicing Hindu, which is that the presence of the provision has made no difference to the ones who are are, uh, comfortable wielding the knife, because the law is no deterrent to someone who is willing to do that. But around the Gyanwapi period, and around the Nupur Sharma controversy period, I know of quite a few Delhi-based journalists uh, coming from the Muslim community, who hastily deleted all their tweets about the Gyanwapi mosque when they made fun of it. In the worst of terms possible, vulgar language was used, they deleted it. When they realized that action, if action could be initiated against Nupur Sharma, so could it be against others as well. That's how even I think Mr. Zubair also deleted quite a few of his th- uh, tweets of the last three years, which mm-hmm. landed him in trouble. So the point is, if we are to operate within the bounds of the constitution, mm-hmm. And if it has to be an equal, let's say, playing field for all concerned, it is not an equal playing field because some people don't seem to care for the existence of the law. In which case, at the very least, I must have a legal handle to resolve some of these disputes in a forum which believes in peace and justice. So 295A is an unfortunate existential necessity to protect our interests in certain ways. In an ideal world, I'd say, as no. long as you can have a civil discussion, there's no problem. Hmm. And we have had several sampradayas in this country even before the advent of Islam and Christianity which didn't agree with each other but which were comfortable living with each other and disagreeing with each other still. They, hen- they held competitions, they held uh, Shastrath and whatnot. That's a different issue. In fact, they would even go to the extent of spewing venom against each other. But somehow, they managed to reign in the sword. Right? But you now say that uh, bring out, take out the Kshatra spirit. Yes. Kshatra spirit is not the same as wanton violence kshatra spirit is when someone says that uh, we will challenge you despite the existence of the law are hindus even deprived of the right of self defense i'll give you a straight of example here in 90 in 1990 it's not as if the presence of the army in kashmir was any less right we are in january 2022 or 2023 a few days away from 19th of January. So, did the presence of the army prevent the exodus of Kashmiri Hindus or Kashmiri pundits to be specific? No, it did not. right? Did the presence of the Indian establishment, the constitution, the police prevent people from posting plasters in Kairana asking for the exodus of Hindus? No, it did not. Did it prevent the massacre of Hindus in the aftermath of the post poll violence uh, in Bengal in 2021? No, it did not. So when people say there is the constitution there is everything I agree with all of this hmm. but I am equally a realist and I have seen what has happened. Did it prevent the uh, the massacre of Hindus in kokrajhar riots? No it did not. In fact on the contrary section 66A and 69A were invoked by the then government through its then INB minister to gag on certain handles uh, such as even that of Mr. Kanchan Gupta who was reporting on what was happening there. I know this for a fact. By evening they removed the block, uh, the 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 gag on the particular handle, because I had written a post specifically saying how this is uh, illegal and what is the way to get it out. I'm not saying that that is why they removed it, but they realized how drastic the measure had been. So somehow the establishment of the system and all these procedures seemed to come in the way of access to justice of Hindus. So what am I supposed to say then? I'm supposed to repeat the golden lines of Mr. Mahatma Gandhi, who asked the Jews to go to the gas chamber when Hitler was p- pushing them into gas chambers. I'm not going to say that. I'm only going to say, protect your family, protect your people, because you can't trust the state to arrive at the right time when you need help. How is that wrong? Is self-defense taken away from constitutional morality? Is it not part of my basic right? So then, what Pragya Thakur said, keep knives? No, it's like this. The thing is, I wish Sadhvi Pragya knew how to speak in English and in Queen's English because then perhaps her point would have found better purchase because she wore saffron had a tika and has sadhvi in her name and said it in hindi she's obviously vilified and castigated so you have lawyers from the other community around the ca actively telling people to buy arms they went ahead and processed even uh, licenses for for uh, for firearms i don't want to name the uh, the individuals concerned and we can't even tell
1: people protect yourself What is the difference? You're not just saying protect yourself. You're saying arm yourself. No.
0: So I'm not going to be a mouthpiece for anybody else. Let me clarify my position here. Mm. My position is there is a difference between being peaceful and being pacifist. I am saying don't be pacifists. Be peaceful. Which means look at peace as the first option of resort. But if that's not something that's on the table... And that's not even up for negotiation by the other party, then protect yourself. And therefore, Kshatra spirit effectively says, Read ki haddi ko mazboot karo. Aur Atma ke liye jo kuch bhi karna pade, aap ki When Jababaki gharko koi aag lagane aare, to kya boski samwe
1: samidhan kae ak pasha Is that going to happen? That pacifist nature of Hinduism hmm. is supposed to have kept this civilization alive despite. Despite the invasions, despite the colonialism. Oh, on the contrary, it? no? it's the martial
0: spirit that has kept this uh, civilization alive. The Vijayanagara Empire, Rana Pratap, the Marathas. Do you think they were being peaceful and therefore they were let alive? No, no, not at all. Pacifism has crept into this country after the introduction of the Arms Act under the British, where they chose to take away your weapons. And they chose to ban all your martial traditions, such as Kalari Piyotu, which is practiced in the southern part of the country. All these traditions were banned. So Kalirupaya is effectively a martial art which is, which is believed to have been founded by Sri Parashrama and therefore it is in the Parashrama Kshetra which is mm. the entire from Konkan to Malabar the entire region is practiced mm. Now the point is it is absolutely factually and historically inaccurate to believe that the peace-loving nature of Hindus is responsible for their continued survival no okay. it's the sword that protected you Someone constantly wielded the sword. It's the Kshatriyas, the Kshatra, and the non-Kshatriyas who ended up taking the role of Kshatriyas. They were the ones to do this for us. Hmm. This pacifism is the consequence of the moderate spirit introduced into Indian public discourse by the creation of this entity called the Congress. I say this very clearly. That it was done to diffuse a fire. A.O. Hume had seven volumes of reports saying that there was an underground movement building with massive collection of arms. And there would be a massive repeat of 1857 or even worse. Hmm. Then he chooses to come out with the safety valve theory that we need to create a political body which provides, let's say, a platform for ventilation so that this anger is dissipated. And therefore, we have our ears to the ground. That ears to the ground is is the Congress.
1: Right. Uh, While I'm heading towards conclusion, I have two more questions. Uh, One is about two things which I want you to tell me. Difference between Hinduism and Hindutva. Is it the same thing or not? You've been asked this a million times, but still. Hinduism and Hindutva. And is Dharma and Sanatan Dharma the same thing? Right. So, uh, Hindutva is a
0: religio-political civilizational construct which is resistive in nature to protect Hindu Dharma and its adherents. It is a necessity of the times we live in. Unfortunately so, even after several years of Savarkar's passing. Mm. And I've said this in my debate with Mr. Tharoor or Dr. Tharoor, that it came much before Savarkar and it was actually formulated by Chandranath Bhushu. not Savarkar. Savarkar did not coin Hindutva. It came much before him. A detailed extract exists, an exposition of what is Hindutva. So Hindutva in that particular sense, translates to Ness, and therefore, it's Hinduness. And it is to say, wear that identity with pride. So Hinduism is the object of protection. Hindutva is both the sword as well as the shield to protect that particular Hindu nature. That's the answer. Now, from my perspective, what does it translate to? I've clearly said in the first book that a civilizational attempt at rediscovering your roots and re-inscribing your values on the political establishment is Hindutva and it is perfectly justified. We don't need to be apologetic about it even one bit.
1: So Hinduism can coexist peacefully along with Hindutva? They don't need to be in dissonance with each other?
0: The existence of Hinduism in the current day is predicated on Hindutva being kept alive. If Hinduism were living in peacetime, Hindutva will sleep. But if that's not the case, Hindutva has to stand up. It is the Kshatra aspect of Hinduism. Oh, That's profound. Okay. Now coming to the Dharma and Sanatana Sanatan dharma. dharma, there is no distinction. Hmm. To the best of my limited knowledge as an untrained person, my training has just about begun. See, Dharma is seen as a, a code of conduct. But if you go deeper, what is the meaning of Dharma? It comes from uh, Rita is the root. From Rita, which is effectively righteousness in thought. It comes down to Satya, which is righteousness in speech, speech. and Dharma is righteousness in action. So it is manasa, vacha, Karmana. That is the three-layered philosophy between this. So Dharma is the final manifestation of Rita. Okay. Therefore, Rita is what is right and righteous according to cosmological balance. So whatever is meant to keep this balance in the same place and alive is Dharma. So dharma is dhara iti dharma, which is that which sustains. What does it sustain? This cosmic balance. You now, know, sanatana dharma uh-huh. is because it is effectively a principle of the universe, it is therefore immortal and eternal.
1: Okay, you know, you were talking about Hindutva and Kshatra. Now, um, as we head closer to elections in, uh, in Karnataka, this whole thing about... Hindutva is going to come up because the Congress in Karnataka, I'm, I'm coming back to the present, the Congress in Karnataka keeps talking about the BJP being uh, that, that they're extremists. I think uh, the word is ugragami that is used against uh, uh, against the BJP, that they are extremists of Hinduism and that is going to disrupt peaceful society in Karnataka. Now, there are several elections which are coming about. This whole thing about who is a Hindu is something that is going to come again and again. And there is going to be weaponization of political Hinduism. Correct. That's going to happen. Right. What do you see the future if of this intellectual debate degenerating into this? Political discourse is rarely intellectual. Mm. You
0: know this better than I do. It has no space for nuance. It has no space for layers. It has no space for patience which is why I stay away from the the hustle and bustle and the ebb and tide of daily politics because that's not my concern. My investment, hopefully, and the investment of my time is in the society because my hope is that a, a more Hindu-conscious society will produce better options as and when the times call for it because I think it will or they will. And therefore, uh, this nonsensical discussion that happens at the political platform I don't think anybody knows what they're talking about beyond a point and I'm not saying this from a position of arrogance I am saying this as a student of the subject as someone who understands political science that I don't know if they're capable of actually having this discussion at length beyond a prime time television debate because that would really show what is the depth of their knowledge and their understanding of their own positions We mm-hmm. are not looking at the ideologues of a particular movement you're looking at people who are contesting elections yeah right so, I don't want to even give them... And let's be real. I can't expect them to know Sanatana Dharma in its most profound... best. they are the
1: practitioners and they are the ones who are influencing voting public. So, you know how important that is, right? So, between you and me, let's uh, agree on one thing.
0: Societal discussion has a certain degree of nuance. By the time it percolates, let's say, it, it, it telescopes into a political discussion that nuance comes out. But even the societal discussion doesn't usually have nuance it is then in the intellectual elites where the nuance actually comes. So I would basically apply the Hindu philosophy of Desha Kala Samaya, which is to say, this platform requires a broad attack on a particular position or a broad exposition of a certain position. I can't help the fact that the nature of the process and the nature of the platform doesn't lend itself to nuance. But does it capture the broad essence of it? I would say it does.
1: I didn't understand Desha Kala Samaya. Which is to
0: say, a discussion that happens perhaps, let's say... uh, in a seminar on Hindutva between uh, academics is not going to be the same as a discussion on Hindutva between politicians. Correct. Right? So therefore, the space will determine the degree of nuance that is possible. However, the nature of political discussion is that it's going to be Moti Budhi only beyond the point. (laughs) Right? But to the extent that it captures the point Mota Mota, I'm okay with it. And there's a good reason for this. Why? This particular position has not had representation for such a long time and such a forceful representation. And as a community which is already uh, lacking in options, I am not going to be nitpicking here to say I need someone who is able to define Hindutva with a greater degree of nuance. Let's get real. Then it falls upon the society to inform itself better, independent of the political discussion, also. So it's not
1: just poly- political; it's happening with this Patan controversy also, and in Bollywood, the whole thing about Bollywood. No, it is becoming important. No, the, you saw recently. I agree
0: with you, but I'll tell you where the, uh, my... all
1: these Bollywood people they met up with Yogi and they said <laughs> that stop this ban uh, culture because uh, unless you speak up for us, it's not. It's, it's impacting on industry also now. So let me say something which
0: most people may not even anticipate the speed with which the community reacted to the Pathan controversy is not the speed with which it reacts on freedom of temples from the state, is not the speed with which it reacts on environmental issues. So these insta-gratification issues we seem to be quick to uh, take up to and and immediately react because, oh, we did this, we got something boycotted, that was the end of it. Okay, but what next? So. In one of my discussions, I've clearly said Hindutva or Hindu decoloniality has two aspects. One is the resistive. The other has to be very, very positive. It means make sure that your institutions are self-sufficient and are independent of the state. Make sure that your institutions reach out to people on two important sectors, health and education. Make sure that no woman from this particular community is ever unsafe. Make sure that no person from this particular community is ever hungry, ever goes unfed at nights. This is exactly what the temples used to do. That at the end of the day, before the temple is shut, the pujari comes out waving a bell. Is anybody hungry? Is anybody hungry? Is anybody hungry? The reputation that, or let's say the perception of the langars in the popular mind, has to be the perception of people with respect to mandirs. Because at the end of the day, Anadanam is our concept. Right? So these are certain positives. Mm. Now all these discussions are not capable of being had at the political level. Because it's, when you're on a constant election cycle, where is the scope for these kind of discussions? So there are two realms, I would say. The societal realm where Hindutva is spoken of and discussed and, and entrenched in better ways, in more positive ways. And then the political realm, where it is, it's it's a free-for-all, it's a battle. That can't be helped. I am not going to take away the right of the society to discuss and entrench Hindutva, citing the
1: political discussion and, and the lack of its nuance. Sorry, the comparison is unfair. Okay, well, thank you so much, Sai, and uh, all the best. Uh, I hope your book does very well because it is—it's like you said that you have cited so many sources, and it's very interesting reading. And I hope not just uh, youngsters who are interested in history, but everybody gets to read this. Thank, thank you, you very much for coming very to the podcast. You. Thank you for giving thank me you. space. Thank Thanks. You. Thanks. Thank you very much for listening in to this edition of ANI Podcast with Smita Prakash. Do like or subscribe on whichever channel you have seen this or heard this. Namaste, Jai Hind.